0: Brian Goldberg is the founder of Bustle, a digital media startup with 55 million monthly readers that covers everything from politics to The Bachelor. This isn't his first successful startup, though. In his 20s, Brian co-founded Bleacher Report, a sports website that sold to Turner for more than $200 million. Right after it sold, Goldberg did what a successful 20-something should do to celebrate. He and his co-founders went to Vegas. But they also paid for all 160 Bleacher Report employees to join them there.
1: As we know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But I would say on a scale of 1 to 10 for just like, oh, my, OMFG, it's like probably a 10. I mean, like, I don't know what an 11 would look like.
0: While Goldberg wouldn't reveal exactly what happened in Vegas, he did reveal tips and tricks he's used to become a successful businessman twice. Brian joins us in this episode of Success, How I Did It, a Business Insider podcast about inspiring people and the career paths that took them to the top. I'm your host and Business Insider's U.S. Editor-in-Chief, Allison Chantel. We have Brian Goldberg, CEO and founder of Bustle with us today. He also in a previous lifetime founded Bleacher Report with three middle school friends, mm-hmm. sold it for two hundred million dollars plus. And Brian, you've been doing this for a decade now. You've been a founder for a decade.
1: Yes, oh for a decade, which is which is a long time. Um, I think a decade's the first time I'll say I've been doing this for a long time. And in the case of digital media specifically, it's it's really for most of digital media's existence. So um I could I could say that's one thing I was early in and and it has changed a lot and it's continuing to change even more. So um, and as long as I'm in the game here, um, there's there's more to learn and more to more to build and more to do.
0: Cool. So well, first off, let's start out by asking you Mm -hmm. what is Bustle Mm -hmm. for people who don't know and where is it now? How many?
1: Sure. What's the viewership? Sure. I know it's we're on a business podcast, so people uh, want numbers. Uh, So Bustle is um, not only the largest. Uh, media property in the United States aimed at young women, um, also a platform for young women. We are, um, in terms of numbers, f- January 55 million uh, monthly unique visitors uh, coming to read our content in news, in entertainment, in lifestyle, fashion and beauty. Uh, we, is any
0: of that from the Trump bump?
1: There has been a Trump bump. Um, or we, is it the Bachelor bump? Because you guys uh, both, that a lot. Both. It's very, very good question. Um, we... In the month of January, we had many millions of people coming to the site for both of those topics. I'd say those were probably the two uh, the two biggest draws. And I think that that dichotomy between, you know, really smart, insightful content about news and politics, as well as probably some of the best Bachelor coverage you're ever going to find, um, that dichotomy and, the, and that sort of coming together of content is, you know, both – The two biggest drivers we had in January, but also, I think, in some ways symbolic of of who we are as a site that uh, is really proud of our coverage of, of, you know, what in the past has been viewed as very different types of topics that appeal to often the same uh, young woman.
0: Cool. Well, I want to get into all that and how the media industry has changed in your decades since mm-hmm. you joined it. But first, let's go back to 2007, to mm-hmm. those early days when you and your buddies from middle school decided yep. to start a company. You've sure. never founded anything before, right? And yeah. certainly not a media company. Yep.
1: And I'm, I'm going to take it back even further to 2005 because we launched Bleacher in earnest in 2007. But the story begins in 2005, right when we graduated college. So 2005, I just graduated college My co-founders had just graduated college, and we were all very above average. None of us were remarkable. None of us had gone to Ivy League schools. We would all applied to Ivy League schools. We did not get in. Um, And back in 2005, if you wanted to go into business, broadly speaking, the game plan really was simple. You know, go to a good college, and then you have two choices. Investment banking, with Goldman Sachs being where you wanted to be, or Lehman Brothers, Or management consulting, in which case McKinsey or Bain or BCG was the dream. And when I graduated college in 2005, I did one of those two paths. I started going down the path of management consulting. The plan was to get an MBA. And for most people like me or my co-founders, the first decade of your career, banking, consulting, business school, then back into banking and consulting, was was really prescribed. And shortly after college, we had this idea to start a dot-com. That's what that, that's what we said in those days. I want to launch a, a website, a .com, uh, around sports, and people thought this was so stupid. And the people I was talking to, of course, were you know college friends, people I worked with in consulting, people who you know presumed I was going to go the NBA path, and they basically said, "This is yesterday's dream. This is so th- this is so like nostalgic of you to go think you can start a website in the year 2005." I mean, the the, the .com disaster was you know four or five years gone and and banking was so hot and people really thought that I was chasing yesterday's dream um and these same people by the way seven years later had graduated from harvard business school and were quitting their jobs at goldman to go start startups and you know by 2012 it wasn't too late but a lot more crowded those few years after 9-11 and and before Lehman brothers really were this dead period there were no venture capital firms throwing out money uh, they were pretty much dry incubators didn't yet exist and so we had this idea in 2005, and we really spent two years.
0: Well, that's a year after Facebook launched. So was. there was some stuff brewing, but you're right, well, look, it was, yeah, it was at, kind of dead.
1: It was, it was Facebook, and you know what's funny is, in t- if you were to say 2005, 2006, what was the company that got people excited? Y- you think it's Facebook, and you think about the Google IPO, the, the one that actually got people excited was Dig, and in 2006, there was this picture of Kevin Rose on the cover of Business Week. I think, I think Sarah Lacy wrote that article. And what's, you know, what's also memorable is Kevin Rose on the cover giving a thumbs up and, you know, how this kid made $60 million in 18 months. And really for, I think, people starting companies in that time period, that was sort of the, oh, my God. I mean, we knew that Facebook was going to be huge. We knew that that was once in a decade lightning in a bottle. And we knew Google was the same thing a decade earlier. But the thing that was just like, hey, you can go do this. Like, regular guys can go launch a cool Web 2.0 idea was definitely dig around 2005, 2006. And that's what really made us say to ourselves, "Oh my God, we have this great idea. Let's go get this off the ground. We have this business plan and this dream." And I love we that have- you had a business plan. We had a business it's such plan. Such a rookie startup move, I feel like. It was. I mean, it was. It was. It was sketched based on the business plans I learned about. I'd taken competitive strategy in college. A very sort of pre-MBA course for what was supposed to be very pre-MBA life. And we had a, a four or five page business plan, competitive advantage, differentiation, you know, a SWOT analysis. User. we could have done a SWOT analysis, we could have done a Porter's Five Forces. And I think I did a Porter's Five Forces analysis and showed it to my dad who did get a Harvard MBA. And but but, you know, the what I love about Bleach Report, and it's the same thing I love about Bustle is I think the original game plan was very true. And and I give all the credit in the world to those who pivot, but Bleach Report's game plan, if you found that business plan from 2005, 2006, which we cannot find, sadly, uh, but if someone ever dug it up, my mom might have it, so I have to ask. But if we ever found it, you would look at that, and you look at Bleach Report today in 2017, and you'd say, you know what? It's not identical, but it's pretty damn close. And the same thing for Bustle. So, um, so I look back at that time and, and look, our founding story is a lot like everyone else's, you know, a group of guys got together with this cool idea. We wanted to go do it. We talked about it over beers and 99.99% of the time people sober up the next day, forget about it. And then years later at, at a birthday or bachelor party, they go, oh, remember that idea we had that we never did. That was Bleach Report, except we actually did it. Take me back to those
0: early days. You're uh-huh. a first time founder. All uh-huh. of you kind of stumble into media yeah. after this drinks uh-huh. meeting that you then yeah. sober up and decide to do. Uh, how were you welcomed into the startup community? You didn't go to Ivys. Yeah, you have no experience in this, and VCs weren't really investing.
1: Exactly, and, and frankly, we kind of stayed out of the parties. But, you know, back in San Francisco around 2007, 2008, it, it was a pretty small community um people will remember it sort of very romantically oh there weren't a lot of people but every idea had a chance and you know you'd be having drinks with the airbnb guys and drinks with the twitter guys and and some of that was true but we weren't hanging out with them even though we we went and raised money from tech investors and, and frankly you had to raise money from tech investors and you had to sort of say this is about technology back from between 2007 and maybe 2011. You couldn't go raise money as a media company because no media company had ever been sold for anything valuable, and so you had to say this is about tech. And you always have to begin every VC pitch by saying, "Oh, we're not a media company. This isn't about advertising. This is about technology," which was which was complete bullshit. But you know what? It got the job done. And you you have to live one day at a time. Uh, technology is important to media; it still is. But it wasn't until about 2010 that we really kind of looked in the mirror and said, "Hey, wait a minute." this is a media company, we are a media company. And then when Huffington Post was purchased for hundreds of millions of dollars in 2010, we got to be a lot more sort of out about it and say, hey, we are a media company, we're building this. So we, you know, we were in the right place in the right time. We were in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, 07, 08 when there was a lot of opportunity and, and, and the world started to heat up, but we weren't scenesters.
0: So how did you You had four, co, four, mm-hmm. Founder, mm-hmm. four co-founders, including mm-hmm. you. How mm-hmm. did you all split up the business and how did you start growing it? And when did you know that you mm-hmm. had something on your hands? Did it yeah. take a long time?
1: It, it t- I mean, it took years until we all had a, a quote unquote role. Uh, we were all critical. People say to me, you know, which co-founder was the most important? And I say to them, well, asking me which co-founder was most important is as pointless as asking me, you know, would you rather live without a heart or lungs? You're dead either way. And without my co-founders, this wouldn't have happened. And I think you've met two of my co-founders, Dave Nemitz and Dave Pinocchio, y- you know, you know who they are. We're, all, we're actually pretty similar guys. We all did different things in the beginning. I was the head of tech. I got the website up. I managed the engineers, which in hindsight is preposterous because <laughs> I can't write a line of code, but I was the geekiest. I was I was in a very superficial way that you geekiest. have like a Star Wars poster and they were Exactly. Like, you, it was you it was literally like that. It was literally like like I played video games growing up and I you know was was maybe the geekiest, I was the early, you know the, the first one to get an iPod and the first one to get even a pre-iPod MP3 player. So I was like the geekiest and I just sort of took initiative and we eventually hired a, a real CTO, but I for the first year and a half got the website up and and did so competently, if not, you know, not remarkably, but competently. And, and then ultimately, after a couple of years of doing the technology stuff, I started focusing on advertising. And again, we talk about, you know, why was I the one who became sort of the advertising co-founder? Part of it was I was the single one for a lot of that time in 2010, 2011, 2012, and so I could go fly to New York every other weekend and babysit, you know, our, our very smart, very successful uh, 20-something-year-old advertising team. Um, And so I I did a lot of the advertising. And then, of course, as always, we hired a really big name head of sales. And and I worked on the ops side. But really, I changed hats a lot, probably more than the other guys. Um, But we all did different things throughout the history of the company. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've all been able to kind of continue doing big things in media is because we all saw all the parts. I mean, media companies are complicated. They are, in my opinion, amongst the most complex companies you can run. You've got a creative side. You've got the sales side. You've got the technology piece of it. So you're, you're thinking with all... Three sections of your brain.
0: You guys uh, had a lot of cri- criticism mm-hmm. as you were growing. Yeah. You were doing something that hadn't really been done before. Mm-hmm. People thought it was aggregation. Yeah. They thought you had contributors, mm-hmm. that you weren't paying yeah. well. Um, so, this was pretty new stuff, especially yeah. in sports, which seems like it's even a little bit more behind the rest of the media industry. Oh, yeah. Sports
1: is very stuffy.
0: So, how did you deal with all the negativity? And how did you kind of decide what to listen to and what not to? And
1: Yeah. So first of all, we have very thick skin. You cannot be in media without having incredibly thick skin. That's just the rule. Like, do not get in, like, do, don't go into banking if you can't work a lot of hours. Don't go into medicine if, if you can't stand the sight of blood. And do not go into media if you do not have very thick skin. And so people would find us through message boards, through search. And the fact that people found us in a distributed way versus going to www.bleacherreport.com really irked the establishment and the term distributed content had not yet existed i give buzzfeed love credit for putting sort of terminology to some of these concepts but bleacher Report was doing it really early on and we got attacked relentlessly for it and in hindsight it really was you know i don't want to say bleacher Report gets credit for inventing distributed content for inventing the listicle for being sort of fan first you know you never want to take credit for inventing anything in media or you get attacked. We were very early. I'll say that. And I think that if you were to look at the game plan of what is digital media to someone in the year 2017, no one gets more credit than us for advancing that game plan, making that game plan work. Um, and we're very proud of it. And, and But the attacks were relentless and, in hindsight, undeserved. And I guess, you know, you can look back and there's never such thing as I told you so. But we feel pretty good about it.
0: So let's talk about that I told you so almost mm-hmm. pretty much moment. Mm-hmm. You guys ended up getting acquired mm-hmm. for a very hefty sum of money, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, now it seems a little bit like, yeah. I don't want to say chicken feed. Yeah. But when you have dollars, people with like multi-billion dollars. dollar valuations yeah. in media, then I'm sure mm-hmm. $200 million is an incredible amount of money. Yeah. It's not chicken feed at all. Yeah. I would be totally happy to sell a company for that. But, um, but at the time it was massive. Yeah. It was hugely massive. They and it's more been, now. Yeah. And having to post it sold for what three hundred plus million. Plus. Yeah. Take me behind the scenes mm-hmm. of the deal. Mm-hmm. How did those talks heat up? What were the discussions like? Was it grueling? If I recall, it was like an eight-month process. It was a long
1: negotiation. I always tell people, these negotiations take a long time. And we had an investment banker. We had um uh RBC Capital was the investment banker on the deal. And and So were you trying to sell yourselves? They they leaned in, they leaned in we tried to run a process of getting others interested. There was interest, but it was very clear there was one buyer who freaking wanted to own this thing. And the banks knew what they did. I mean, it got some in conversations with, I'm not going to say who, but other big sports media companies.
0: Oh, enough time has passed. You could say.
1: I mean, like, look, you know, I'm not going to say anything to finish. You know, did ESPN kick the tires? Did... Did CBS and NBC kick the tires? There was tire kicking going on, and maybe now they're kicking themselves because they should have done the deal. Though I don't think Disney has much to lose sleep over these days; they're doing terrific. Um, people kicked around, but there—this was a case where there was one buyer who needed us, and it was—I think probably in my opinion—like five months of 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 banter till we could get to a price, and the price, you know, the price conversation took place. My focus as a founder at that time, though, to be honest, wasn't, you know, we let the bankers and Brian Gray handle a lot of the negotiation on price. And, and look, you should have bankers in any MA and a deal. The, people say don't, you absolutely should have a banker in any MA deal. Bankers handle a lot of the exits and O's of negotiation. It's not the first time they've negotiated. I know that's the sexy part. For me, the sexy part was saying, okay, this thing's going to sell in two or three months. This deal's probably going to happen. It makes sense. When it's done, I'm going to have money i'm gonna be 30 years old and i need to figure out what i'm doing with the rest of my life which is actually a scary position to be in you know making a little bit of money doesn't mean that you that the next 60 years of your life are just sitting on a beach that's not who i am so i had to figure out what the hell's my game plan here like what do i do next being 30 years old having some money and knowing that i'm not gonna be hanging around at police report for the next 50 years so
0: and why didn't you want to hang around
1: I had one more thing left to do. I think you know when you have sort of one more left in you. And Bleacher Report is an amazing experience. The co founder experience was critical, it wouldn't happen without him. I wanted to go do my own show. And I had one sort of market I wanted to try out. I wanted to test what I could do on my own. I wanted to go solo. I think that's very natural after seven years with a band, you want to go solo. Um, and, I, and that's what I did. I, wanted, I didn't want to go start five more media companies. I've been saying pretty openly that I don't think I'm going to start another media company after this. Um, I wanted to go solo and kind of see it through and and build something on my own.
0: So before we go into that, mm-hmm. uh, you all sold the company mm-hmm. and you and your co-founders went to Vegas.
1: Oh, oh Tell you, me about the Vegas trip. We there Under no circumstances will I talk about the Vegas trip. Oh, come on. What I will say is I cannot believe. You were young and dumb then. It doesn't I matter. I cannot believe we did that. I cannot Why? believe that's what
0: everyone should do when they sell right
1: no it's not what you should do if you we didn't I will say this we were a young company and in the year 2012 We went to Vegas the whole company the
0: entire company like, all of Bleacher Report like
1: the entire company did you pay very, for them all to go we did the founders paid for it it was we'd sold the company we'd made money and we said let's each chip in like you know x thousand dollars and fly the whole company to Vegas and how many people was it at that point that was like 160 people, 170 people, and the CEO Brian Gray very wisely didn't go. I think you know one of the fun things about having a CEO when you're in your 20s running a company is you know he can he can be the he can be the grown up and he can kind of look the other way and 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 he, he was like I'm not going anywhere near this. You pay for it out of pocket. You do it on the weekend. This is not a bleacher port event. And you know I think Turner. Had, It was so early, in the. I think, after the sale that that Turner hadn't really put their arms around the gummy, So we had this very narrow window for the founders to pay out of pocket to do a non-company event on the weekend to go to Vegas. And as we know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But I would say on a scale of 1 to 10 for just like, oh, my, OMFG, it's like probably a 10. I mean, like, I don't know what an 11 would look like.
0: What does a 10 look like? You
1: want to know what a 10 looks like? It, it looks like all the things you think about in a rock star moment. And I, again, I I cannot. It might be. It might be. It, it would be. I'm not going in the, except to say we all came back alive. It helped build the team. It was not forgotten. And that sort of behavior never again happened uh, and will never happen again. And at Bustle, uh, you know, we.
0: So there's not going to be like some Bustle Cancun sorts. trip when you guys sell.
1: If we sell Bustle, I do not, I hate to say it, and, I'm, and, and my team at Bustle is going to hear this podcast, and be like, well, wait a minute, Bleacher Report got to do a Vegas trip. Why don't we? And I'm going to say, you know what? Because I was young then, and I'm old now, an old, boring, stodgy Brian in his mid-30s is not going to do a trip to Vegas because it's just not the right thing to do. It's uh-huh. just, you can't do it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm beat red right now. Thank God this is a podcast because, because it was, you just can't do those sorts of things. Not in the year 20." 17, 2018, 20, 2019, 20, whatever it turns out to be.
0: Well, not with social media there to capture exactly.
1: it. Exactly. I mean, Twitter existed, but things were different back then. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figures Home Equity Line of Credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, and nmls 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.mlskonsumeraccess.org.
0: A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. So tell me uh, what, okay, so old stodgy Brian yes. has now founded Bustle. Yes. You guys have 55 million readers to mm-hmm. your site, which mm-hmm. is pretty incredible because now mm-hmm. everything seems to be distributed. So let's talk about um, your launch a mm-hmm. little bit. Yep. Because it was sort of infamous. Mm-hmm. I know you've talked about it a lot, but uh, there was a PR debacle. Yep. You came out, pissed a lot of people off. Mm-hmm. Said, well, I do that Brian. sometimes. <laughs> I piss people off. Yeah, well, you got a reaction. You said, I'm Brian Goldberg, mm-hmm. and I'm going to basically start the first women's site mm-hmm. ever, of which every other woman in media was like, what the mm-hmm. hell, Brian? So yeah. Talk about that. Well, and- I
1: do think, you know, broadly speaking in media, you do want to make noise. You do want to be noticed. You do want to be loud. You do want to be provocative. But you want to keep it under control, and you don't want to piss people off. I don't believe that all, all attention, all press is good press. It's up to a certain point, but if everyone's yelling at you and, and throwing rocks at you and criticizing you, then you've gone too far look no one's you know you look at the launch basically i was very loud and I'm a, i was a man being very loud and i said things that that other people say too you know yesterday marie Claire tweeted um that there's nothing you know there's women's magazines have always talked about makeup and politics at the same time and that's essentially what i said i think i think i said almost the exact same thing four years ago i said hey this is gonna be a feminist website we're gonna talk about fashion beauty we're also going to talk about what's going on in syria and were no apologies about it. And, you know, the, the tone, I didn't know a lot of, you know, thought leaders in women's media at the time. I was an unfamiliar face, certainly the wrong face. So sort of this, this dude, uh, this, you know, and, and frankly, image-wise, you know, identity-wise, you know, this young, white, cisgender male who's made money, talking about rocking the world and changing the world and talking about women's media it wasn't a great image it wasn't a great look and and in hindsight i would have handled it differently and 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 didn't really want to piss people off it came from a very sincere place like i really was excited about going to market raising all this money and launching a feminist publication um you know but that excitement came from the right place but it pissed everyone off um and so my general advice is Look, be loud, make a lot of noise. In media, you have to be noticed. You know, do it. There's different ways to do it. Um, The great story, though, in the end is you look back four years, and one, I'm friends with a lot of the people who were my initial critics. Uh, So it was a great way to meet people. It's not how you should always meet people, but it's how you get, you know, it's one way to meet people.
0: So... Okay, so the launch could have gone better, mm-hmm. but you did get a lot of traffic out of it. And very mm-hmm. quickly, it seemed mm-hmm. like you guys had gained yep. some traction. Um, one thing that I thought was notable is you did get this money from the sale mm-hmm. of Bleacher Report, mm-hmm. and yet you decided to raise a big round yeah. for starting this company. So yeah. what what made you decide to, rather than just do it with your own money and keep 100% of the pie, mm-hmm. split it up with VCs?
1: Well, we, I put a lot of money into it. I mean, I put, you know, I, I made a good amount of money on, on Bleacher Report, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't. What you might picture, and I owned a very small single-digit percentage of the company when we sold it for 200 million. So you well,
0: there could, were four founders. You four guys founders. raised we tens of millions of dollars during
1: recessions. I mean, I owned a very small slice by the end, so I had made money. But
0: were there four founders or three?
1: Uh, four original founders, three okay. when we sold the company. And oh, drama! Well, different story, different day. Um, so we, you know, I owned a few percent of the company. We sold it, and so I made money. But but, and I put you know several hundred thousand dollars of my money and and my family as well. So we put a lot of money into it. But to start these companies. In my opinion, you you do need to raise at least twenty or thirty million dollars, and usually you can't raise that on day one. So you got to go raise five or six, and then prove that you know what you're doing and get some traction, and then VCs will follow with you know a Series B or Series C check, give you get you to twenty or thirty million. Media companies require scale. You know, but you know, Bustle has only raised. and I'm doing little air quotes here. Only raised, I think, thirty seven million dollars. That's nothing compared to our peers at BuzzFeed or Vox or Refinery29 who have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. So I knew that when we raised, you know, six million plus in the beginning, that that was only the first step and that we'd have to raise tens of million more just to have a seat at the table. So I, you know, between myself and my family everyone, we put in close to a million dollars. It's a lot of money for me. It's a lot of money for my family. We're not, you know, we're not, you know, that rich here. So so it was a lot. It was a big bet and, and it was a pretty gutsy bet. And I think that's one of the reasons investors got excited is because I said look I'm putting a big percentage of my net worth into this company because I believe in it and nothing will bring investors to the table faster than when you put your own money into something and, and frankly if you don't it's a red flag
0: great um, so okay so now this is your first time mm-hmm. as CEO
1: mm-hmm.
0: how have you navigated that process mm-hmm. what have you learned about yeah. being a CEO what's surprising about it yeah I
1: mean it's and it, it, you know it's, it's first of all it's a lot of fun I, I do like you know, I think I've succeeded in this capacity and it's a different capacity than being sort of the founder. Um, Being a media CEO is a very specific type of CEO. And there are a lot of media CEOs who are unsuccessful, very few who are successful. And if you want to know how to be a successful media CEO, I will tell you right now. And then you can apply this framework. You can look at everyone who's succeeded and failed. And this framework works every time. The job of a media CEO is to balance three power bases. Your editorial power base, your sales and marketing power base, and then your tech and operations power base. And if you ever let one of those three gain hegemony over the other, your company will fail. Think of it as a three-legged stool. If one leg gets too long, you will fall off the stool and you will crack your head open. I mean, if you look at most digital media companies, the CEO came out of one of those three camps. You know, at some media companies, it's tech. At some media companies, it was founded by sort of a, tech, a techie person, and they think that data and A-B testing and headline manipulation is the key to success, and you know, they wanna see the data, 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 and, and the others are saying, you know, this isn't just about data. And The sales team's saying, hey, there's a lot of art and science to this. And, and I've seen a lot of media companies that are too techie, and they fail for that reason. And so
0: well, I think you need to have a really creative person mm-hmm. at the helm or a creative brain person mm-hmm. and then also someone who's analytical.
1: Exactly. And look, I love to write. I'm I'm not I'm not a creative type. I don't think anyone looks at me and goes, Oh, Brian's an artist. Um but I do love to write. And and the first time we met is because I was writing for Pando for Sarah Lacey for years and I love doing it. I love to write. And if I the one thing I know I will do one day long down the road is I'm gonna be a writer again because I love to write. So I do have that somewhere in my heart, you know. Hidden in my heart is the love and passion of being a writer, but I'm also, you know, an economics major. I love data. I'm very business-oriented. I'm very comfortable in financial conversations, but I'm also very at home, you know, with editors talking about writing, talking about editorial. And and like I said, there's a geek part of me. It is not the dominant part of me. But I think that mo- I, for example, play Magic: The Gathering. Every month at Bustle, I host Magic: The Gathering night. Or and even,
0: what is that? You
1: don't know what Magic: The Gathering no. is? Really?
0: Yeah, I'm sorry, no. Okay,
1: <laughs> like if there were if if there were Studio I will be laughing, you don't know Magic: The Gathering is? It's it is the it is the, in, ostensibly the nerdiest thing. It's like it's like a, a wizardry card game okay. where you you know you have ogres and and goblins and and vampires and they're battling it out. They play it's, this at Bustle. I play it at my house and Bustle all Bustlers are invited to come play it with me it's like the nerdiest thing ever it's so nerdy that I played it all my life but like when I was in high school I had to stop playing it because like I was just embarrassed because I was a high schooler and I cared what people thought Um, I still play play the game now I'm very open about it it's like it is but truly it's like the geekiest thing ever and I love it I'm proud of it and I go to tournaments and so I do have
0: wait do you play in the tournaments
1: yeah I'm not, I I. don't win I'm not good at it I mean to be good at this game You've got to play it than oh than this a play is a it. whole Separate conversation This is a whole separate conversation But like I do nerdy geeky things And I'm not afraid to like Go party to club till five In the morning And then the next day Like over lunch Play Magic the Gathering
0: Wait you're, I mean, you're at clubs till five You told me that the It's old Stodgy Brian now Well
1: yes But critically Old Stodgy Brian In New York City and that's ah. different to being old, stodgy Brian in San Francisco, where everyone goes to bed at 11 and wakes up and hikes.
0: This is true. Well, I will save you from yourself here and switch the topic because okay. we could go into this for a long time. But I think it's important to cover what the media industry is doing right now Um, you've had 10 years of looking Mm -hmm. at it and being deep in the Mm -hmm. weeds and you're an ad guy at heart that's how you kind of started at Bleacher so Mm -hmm. um, what trends are you seeing in advertising right now it seems like everyone was thinking when BuzzFeed was raising 200 million and Fox was raising Mm -hmm. 200 million everybody kind of thought the TV dollars Mm -hmm. were open to them but now it seems like all the ad money that's flowing to digital Mm -hmm. is actually really going to Mm -hmm. Google and Facebook Mm -hmm. and publishers aren't getting the cuts that they had Mm -hmm. thought about so what are you seeing
1: so so I'm going to give you a couple of high-level theses that I believe are correct and I have high conviction about. So um, conviction number one is dollars are not leaving TV anytime soon. It, it, the dollars are just too big to move. You can't pull deals measured in hundreds of millions of dollars out of TV so quickly. Media takes time because we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in play here, and that's, those are very cumbersome amounts to move around. So the dollars are going to stay in TV for a long time. Um, It's still king. It's an aging king, but it's still king. Um, Thesis number two, yes, Google and Facebook are going to get a lot of the digital dollars. Maybe it's half, maybe it's two-thirds, maybe it's three-quarters. But that duopoly, it's called the duopoly, be careful using the term duopoly because there's a lot of very powerful interests who have a lot of reason to make sure that Google and Facebook don't get a true duopoly. And if you go talk to the CMOs who are spending billions of dollars they have a true strategic existential threat in the idea of a duopoly. If you are a major CPG company or major auto company and you let your media supplier be only two companies, you are putting yourself in an extremely dangerous position. And so the marketing people who are sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars in marketing and who are going to spend 80, 90, 100 billion dollars on digital spend in the future, they realize that Google and Facebook are terrific avenues for advertising. And they are. They're two of the most efficient, data-driven, outstanding places to spend your marketing money. No doubt about it. But they're not going to let them get a complete hegemony because that would be a true danger. Then they would they would be at risk of, of losing pricing control. And so Facebook and Google are going to get a lot of the money. But the the traditional media companies, the publishers, are still going to have a, many billions of dollars at play. What I think we're going to have to see is more consolidation. So I don't think that like your buddy's blog is going to get a piece of that 30 billion that, you know, if if Google and Facebook are not getting 30, 40 billion of those digital ad dollars, you know, your friend's blog with 300,000 readers, they're not going to make a play. And so, you know, look, you look at telecom and there's only a couple, there's two dominant players. You look at. You look at a lot of industries, you know, airlines, there's only three players right now. Do I think there will be a day three, four years from now where there are literally like three media companies, perhaps subsidiaries of giant telcos, like probably, and everything's going to roll into it and then they will have power.
0: So if you're a media company right Mm -hmm. now. What do you do before that three to four year period when all the consolidation happens? How do you keep surviving?
1: I mean, you just keep growing and you keep doing your thing and you just keep getting better. I mean, as long as the big media companies, the digital players, are not getting better at digital, and they're not. I mean, in some cases, they're doing absolutely nothing. So as long as they're not improving, the Bustles and the Voxes and the Buzzfeeds, we're getting much better at what we do. Like Bustle Today versus a Year ago, you can't even compare. You know, Bustle tripled revenue last year. We tripled revenue. I tell you, we're not tripling revenue every year for you the next. You did about thirty million last year. We I did, think? Yeah, we did. We did close to ten the year before, and we did close to thirty last year. And
0: is it still all direct, or is it? It's l- almost
1: all direct sales. You know, direct direct to. to That's unusual because
0: a lot of people are. Well, tons of people are trying mm-hmm. subscriptions, which I haven't yeah. seen you try. Everyone's trying to dive into video, which you guys Subs- aren't doing much of.
1: So we're doing more than than maybe. I, I should probably be talking about it more because I think part of video is just how much do you talk about it. Um, but but I what I will say is, um. Yes, direct ad sales is still the model. So when I hear medium say, we're, we're going to figure something else out, I'm like, give me a break, medium. And I'm not a fan of, of that particular company's moves and, and the announcement that Evan Williams made because he basically retreated from advertising and said, this is BS. And, and no, advertising is a $200 billion industry. You just got to be good at it. And you've got to offer something to your clients and offer something to your readers. Subscription can make you money. There are like three public, publishers who I think can make real money. It's like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal... And like the New Yorker, and maybe a couple others here and there, Vogue. But but you know this, even for them, advertising is critical. If New York Times has a terrible year in advertising, it's really gonna hurt them. Advertising is a great industry. Anyone who's like, oh, you stay away from advertising, that's complete BS. That's just people who don't know what they're talking about, frankly. Um, so so it's it's a huge market. You know, companies like also like Buzzfeed should be looking to grow their revenue significantly. No, we're not going to triple it every year. That's not reasonable, but it will grow significantly. It will grow linearly. So if a founder came to you and they
0: were like, Brian, I want to start a media company right Mm -hmm.
1: now, would you recommend it? Um, It's hard to start now. It's hard to start now because of scale. That's the biggest impediment is if you didn't start a few years ago, you're not at scale today. If you're not at scale today, it's harder to be in some of these advertising conversations because at Bustle, we can go to an advertiser and say, here's what a million-dollar deal with Bustle looks like. And if you're an advertiser, a CPG advertiser, you don't want to write $50,000 advertising checks.
0: Okay, so how do you get scale for a final question?
1: You need a lot of money up front. And this is, again, this is this is like the Because heart- you're
0: buying—are you buying traffic or no, how?
1: No, no. Well, you, what you're, you're buying a lot of salaries. You're hiring a lot of people. Like like I was just walking around Business Insider's newsroom, and I, I don't look like there were like 100 people in the room. Like you draw big audiences. You do have to create a lot of content. No one wants to admit you have to create a lot of content. But like, look, how much content does Time Inc. put out every day? Like hundreds of stories a day. It's across dozens of properties, but Time Inc. in their giant office downtown is doing hundreds of stories a day. You need scale, and the scale begins with like the scale of – a newsroom with 50, 60, 100 people in it, uh, or more. You know, 1,000 people in the case of, of the Journal and the New York Times. And if you're gonna go hire uh, 100 employees, you need millions and millions of dollars because you're gonna burn a lot of cash. And I burned a lot of cash in the beginning of Bustle. Now we're making good money, but when I was burning a lot of cash in the beginning, my investors were scared. That they, they felt like we were driving full speed towards a cliff. You know, we, we we burned an eight-figure amount of money in 2015, and we burned much very little and much less in 2016 um, we're not gonna burn anything in 2017, uh, you know, hoping to have a good profit line, but, but those first years where you burn cash before you can sort of recover and, and grow your sales, those are painful years. I mean, that's a scary PL. you gotta be able to do that. And unfortunately, if you're a first time founder in media, knowing how to do that, knowing how to drive 80 miles an hour towards a cliff, when to throw on the brakes, when to speed up, how to sort of jump over that cliff and land on the other side, very hard to do if you haven't done it before. And it'll probably you'll probably screw it up, and so that's the hesitation for young founders going into media. And I hate to be the guy who's like, oh, you know, I got in the door, but now it's closed. But it is a different world because when I and my co-founder started in two thousand five, it was a new world, and there was no one to say I've done this before. It really was sort of fresh powder. Um, it's not anymore, and and so I'm. I do mentor and invest and support a lot of young, really talented media founders. I'm going give them all this important advice I can give them, and some of them are going to make it.
0: Okay, so there is some positivity out there, but mm-hmm. it's getting harder. It's, it's getting the harder. There'll be
1: fewer winners, but the ones who win are going to win big. I mean, I mean, there, aren't, there are not a lot of venture-backed sectors where there are going to be many, many multi-billion dollar exits. Um, and where do you the, think that's the case here in media? Yes, yes. I mean, they, they are perfect growth stage investments. There's a reason why firms like General Atlantic and Fidelity and and um, TCV have poured hundreds of millions of dollars into these media batches because they're going to make a great return. But they're only pouring money into a select few because there are going to be a half dozen winners uh, and they're going to make great returns. There's not going to be 30 or 40 winners. Great. But there will be multi-billion dollar exits.
0: Okay, the final, final question. Yes. How much can you lift these days? I see your Facebook and Instagram videos all the time with you and your I trainer. Love,
1: oh, people... Plug it. I How Okay. Much? So I'm I'm a little bit of a troll sometimes on Facebook. I I... I you know I love to write, and my, my I've seen
0: too much of your legs.
1: Uh, people people say to me, don't write edit don't write editorial, don't write politics on Facebook because no one wants to hear what you have to say. So it's like, All right? You know what? You'll get you'll get weightlifting videos. Yes, and so, you have a lot of them. And 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 the more people tell me, I will tell you the text messages I get from my closest friends, from the people I should be listening to, saying, Brian, don't you ever upload another weightlifting video, or I will unfollow you and never talk to you again. I'm like, well, guess what? That is the one thing you can do to make me upload more weightlifting videos. I would say that uh, at some point last year, I said I want to be able to bench press a lot. There's no particular reason. I just want to be able to do it. So I've been working out three times a week. And for me, so for anyone who's a sports fan, if you're a fan of the NFL and how things work in the NFL, it's not about how much you can bench press. It's how many repetitions of 225 pounds you can do. So you know what the combine is, the NFL combine, where the the college players kind of show off their strength and ability to the pros. And the the great strength test in the NFL combine is, is how many times can you lift 225 pounds in a bench press? Uh, that's that's exactly two plates on each side of the bell. And I think the records play, like, in the NFL is like 30-something. If you can do 10, even in the NFL, you know, at certain positions, 10 means, like, you're in the conversation. I can almost do 10. I will never get to 20. I will probably never get to 15. But my goal before I'm done is to be able to do 14 repetitions of 225. If I can do it, it will be filmed. It will be streamed on Facebook Live. You can all watch it. Every, just what I want to see. Just what you want to see. Every few weeks, I really go for it. And I'm like, this is going to be the day. And I set up the little Facebook Live. And I try to do it. And that's when I always fail. Well, but uh, you will get the Viral videos. material. And once I can do 14 reps of 225, you will never see it again. And then I'll gain all the weight back.
0: All right. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much, Brian. <laughs> Thanks, this we was really fun. appreciate having you. Good,
1: good chat. Good chat.